you would take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 23. Genesis, first book in the Bible, chapter 23. We have walked with Abraham on this journey for a little while now, haven't we? But now, beginning in chapter 23, the sun is beginning to set on Abraham's part in the story of God's salvation. And the focus is going to switch from him to his son, to Isaac. So in the next three weeks, we're going to watch as the book kind of closes on on Abraham's life and Isaac begins to take center stage. And after that um, last sermon, we'll we'll take a break from the book of Genesis for a little while. I think we'll probably land in Luke for some time, um, go and and, uh, visit with Luke for some time. But uh, we're watching over these next three weeks as um, things kind of wind down for Abraham. And with the closing of anyone's life, story we're often we're always faced with the reality of of death the fact of death is not anything that we would deny we know that that's going to happen but it's also not something that we would like to think about for very long Um, for instance what do you think about this question do you know where you're going to be buried Uh, i asked my parents that question this week because they're visiting with us just because i was thinking about this um, I think they thought that I was planning for Christmas, maybe buy them some burial plots or something, you know. Um, that's a strange question, isn't it? Where are you going to be buried when you die? Um, but unless Christ returns before we die, it's something that we're all going to have to answer, right? Um, Andrew and I have talked about this at times. Maybe that makes us morbid or strange or something. But it, for us, having lived in two different areas, grown up in two different areas, and now we live in Kentucky and it's as if, you know, we don't live in the place we were born and raised. Where would we be buried? If I died, where would I go? I don't really know. Uh, some of you may be able to relate, not knowing really where home is. Because your final resting place, it kind of says something about you, doesn't it? Uh, you think about soldiers who die in combat overseas. What happens? Their bodies are brought back. Why? Because this is home. Where they died is not home, but this this is home. And so their, their bodies are brought home. And so where we are buried identifies us in, in some way. It, it signifies home. Of course, it's just the place. Uh, it's just the resting place of our bodies. It's not truly us. And yet there is significance to it, isn't there? And so here in Genesis chapter 23, Abraham is faced with the question of where he and Sarah are going to be buried. Where are their burial plots going to be? Are they going to make their final resting place maybe back in Haran? That's where the family's at. That's where they had kind of settled for some time. Are they going to go back there? Or maybe they're going to go all the way back to Ur. You remember that's where God had called them out of. Maybe that's that's home, and so that's where their bodies will be taken to. Or maybe maybe they'll stay in the land of Canaan. Maybe they'll be buried there. It's not a decision that's without consequence. In fact, the choice that they make is significant because it reveals something. It reveals a confidence a confidence that in the darkest of days and even in death, God can be trusted. In the darkest of days and even in death, God can be trusted. Abraham and Sarah can trust God all the way to the end. Darkness and death is going to come to us all. And when darkness and death come, where is our hope? Will we trust in God on our deathbed or will we turn to other sources of hope can god be trusted as we lay dying or as our bodies lie in the grave 
I think that Genesis 22, Genesis 23, I'm sorry, affirms that in the darkest of days and even in death, God can be trusted. Let's read this chapter together. Genesis 23, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read the whole thing. God's word says, Sarah lived 127 years. That's a long life. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. Then he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now, Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of a city, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah which was to the east of Mamre, the field, with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah his wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Verse 1 tells us that Sarah had lived 127 years. When she died, she left behind a 137-year-old husband, with whom I assume she had probably celebrated at least a 100th anniversary, if not more. I don't know what gem or stone you do for your 100th anniversary, but they had to figure that out. And she also left behind a 37-year-old son who had given her laughter in her old age. You think about Sarah. She had moved with her husband from Ur to Haran, and then she had spent most of her life, almost half of it, 62 years, wandering with her husband in the land of Canaan. It hadn't been a very easy life when you think about it. She had faced her share of joys, and she had faced more than her share of hardships, and now it was time 
It was in the land of Canaan, in this familiar territory of Hebron, that, that she eventually died. As every person before and after her, Sarah was not perfect. But unlike every person, Sarah was faithful. Her life was marked by faithfulness, and she's seen in the New Testament as being called a woman of faith. Faithfulness not only to God, but also to her husband. She's lifted up as an example of that. We might imagine uh, in this scene the people of the land coming to honor Sarah in her death, to offer condolences to Isaac and to Abraham. And the text tells us in verse 2 that Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. I can only imagine. I've been married to Andrea for a little over nine years. Can you imagine being married to someone for over a hundred years? What would that be like to have this person who's been your companion for that long, to have her no longer with you? I'm sure that he did mourn. But then in verse 3, the period of mourning expired. It says Abraham rose up from before his dead, and he goes to the Hittites of the land to seek out a burial place for his wife. We see right here that he's not returning to Haran. Uh, he's not returning to Ur, but he's seeking a place to bury his wife in the land of Canaan, in the land that God had promised he would give him. But while it's it's this land is, is promised to Abraham, it's his promised inheritance as he approaches the Hittites, what does he say about himself? He says in verse 4, I am a sojourner and a foreigner. He says, I am a nomad. For 60 plus years of his life, he has lived in this area amongst these people, but he owns none of this land. He has no spot that he could say, this is mine. He has no place to call his own, and all the land that he has ever lived on is borrowed land. So if you're a renter, if all you've ever done in your life is rent, Abraham knows what that feels like. Uh, and now for the first time, he is seeking to acquire some of the land. He wants to buy some of the land. But what does he want to buy? All he wants is a place to bury his wife. So Abraham comes to the people of the land in humility. But we see that in the response of the Hittites that he is, that while he's not this landowner in Canaan, he is a man of some standing and reputation, isn't he? What do they say to him? The Hittites answer Abraham in verse 5. They say, hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. What a what a testimony. Just like Abimelech came to Abraham at the end of chapter 21, you remember, and he says, God is with you in all that you do. The Hittites come to Abraham and they say, you may be a sojourner and a foreigner, but you are a prince of God among us. The Hittites identify him as someone who has represented God well, like he was supposed to. And in response, what do the people of the land do? They say, Abraham, pick anywhere in all of our land for you to bury your dead. I don't think this is the main point of the passage, but I would say that this life of humility and integrity that Abraham has walked, it results in favor with all people. If Abraham had been a tyrant, you might think, if he had come to them and he said, listen, I've been here 60 years, you owe me a spot in this land. What do you think, I mean, how would they have responded? Well, Abraham comes, he bows down at least three times, and he comes in humility. And this long-standing reputation that he has, it has earned respect for him. His walk of faith has earned respect amongst these people. Uh, the question is, I guess, is the same true for us? Do those who surround us see us, people, see us as, as people of integrity, as followers of God who walk in humility? Do people look at our life, especially those who are outside of our faith? 
Did they look at us with the same kind of respect, the same kind of grace that the Hittites looked to Abraham with? That's a good question. Again, I don't think it's the main point, but I think we see Abraham's integrity and the, the response that he gets from the people of the land because of that. So Abraham again shows this humility. He bows down before the Hittites and uh, in response to their grace. And he gets a little more specific. He says, I don't just want anywhere. I, I have a, a piece of land in mind. I'd like the, the cave that belongs to Ephron. And so you can think about this large council and, and Abraham knows who's there. And he's going through the, what he's supposed to do legally. And so Ephron is there and Ephron speaks up. And he immediately says, in the presence of everyone, it's very clear, this is in the presence of everyone, he says that he will not accept any money from Abraham. He says, Abraham, you may take this field. You can have it. And so we see the graciousness not only of Ephraim, but again, this reputation of Abraham, that, that this man is willing to, I will give you this cave, Abraham. You can have it. So Abraham, though, in, in, in verse um, verse 12, again, he bows down before the people of the land, and he says to Ephron, he says, no, I want to buy the land. Um, I, I want to own this land. And Ephron says, in this kind of veiled way, I like the way they say it, he kind of says, Abraham, what's what's a piece of land that's worth 400 shekels of silver? What's that between you and me? I mean, he states the price, but he says he's still offering, Abraham, you can take it. Abraham, here's the price, 400 shekels of silver, and immediately counts out the money, gives it to Ephron, and owns this piece of land. I think Ephron may have been a little bit surprised. I think that Ephron offered that price with the thought of negotiating. 400 shekels of silver is said to be actually probably a really high price for this piece of land. And so Ephron probably said 400 400 shekels of silver, expecting Abraham to say, "Mm, how about 300, you know? And they would haggle and go back and forth until they got the price of the land. But Abraham pays full price for this land why he does it so that that it's his that he's he owns this and he secures it not just for himself but for future generations according to the customs of the land if abraham had paid this price that was that was too low then when abraham and ephron died then the descendants of ephron could come to the descendants of abraham and say this is really ours ephron was kind he gave it to abraham for this lower price but they would they might take it back And so Abraham, by paying full price, he secures the land indefinitely. And in doing that, he's saying, I'm not buying this just for myself. I'm buying it for the generations that are going to come after me. Because he trusts that Abraham and Sarah, he and his wife, are not the only ones that will live in this land, but rather that there will be generations after him that will be in this land. Verses 17 and 18 describe the property. It's kind of formal, and this, this, these verses sort of close out this formal legal section. It reminds me of the end of Ruth. You remember that, where Boaz is doing some negotiation. Of course, there's no sandals involved in this one like in, in Ruth, so we don't have to deal with what that all means. Um, but everything has been done in order. Um, it's It's been, you've, you've noticed maybe as we read through it that um, it was always said it was done in the sight of all the people. Everyone was there. Everyone saw. Everyone heard. Everyone knew what was what was going on. It was all correctly negotiated. Um, and so for the first time now, Abraham owns a piece of the land of Canaan, a piece of the land that God said would be his. And then in verses 19 and 20, the text closes with Abraham taking his wife's body, laying her in the cave. 
and there she has been for thousands of years and there her bones still are at least what would be left of them she is there Abraham Isaac and Rebekah would be buried in this cave Jacob and Leah and even Joseph would be brought up out of the land of Egypt and placed into this cave the cave of Machpelah it's still there Machpelah refers in a sense to the this kind of double chambered cave that, that that's the description of what it was and if you go to the land of Israel you can go to the cave of Machpelah or to the cave of the patriarchs that is often called and you can be there of course there's large things built on top of it you're not going to get into the cave but that's where it is and so that's it what do we do with this passage what is the significance of this? It seems very strange, doesn't it? It seems strange to me that there's so little emphasis on the life and the death of Sarah. So much of this passage is about the negotiations for the land of Canaan. Why is God emphasizing that here? I think we can think around some different themes that maybe might help us understand what does this really mean. And, and one thing would be to think about the disappointment that might be in Abraham and Sarah's hearts. Abraham and Sarah had left Haran over 60 years ago, and they left on the promise that God was going to give them a land, that he was going to give them descendants, and that he would bless them and make them a blessing, that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. Now, God has come through on the promise of a son. God has given them Isaac, this child of promise. They had no grandchildren from him. Isaac didn't even have a wife at this point, but they believed that God had fulfilled this end of the bargain. This was this part of the promise. Now, what about the land, though? Did they believe that there was a hope for them to have any stake in the land of Canaan? I mean, this land is already overrun by landowners that people are staking a claim on it, just like the Hittites. Was there any hope for this man who owned nothing more than what his caravan could carry? Was there any hope for this guy that he could actually own this entire land of Canaan to have everything that God had promised him throughout the years or was this dream dying with Sarah as Sarah dies and as Abraham dies is, is Isaac going to still be in Canaan are Isaac's children still going to be in Canaan so the point is that in the midst of all this disappointment and uncertainty what Abraham does when he purchases this, this field is he says to himself he says to his descendants this is my land says, God will do what he says he will do, and my descendants are going to live here. And in the face of death, God, or Abraham trusts God's promises to him. And he invests himself. He invests a large sum of money in the land of promise because he believes that God had been faithful throughout his entire life. How, how does he have this kind of faith? Because he has watched God provide. He has watched God fulfill his promises. I imagine he even looks at Isaac and he says, you know, if God has given me the son, then surely he's going to give me the land. If he's given me the son, then surely he fulfilled the second part of the promise, so give me the land that he promised. Now the parallel to us, I think, is hopefully becoming clear. We might remember that God has done to us as he has done to Abraham. He's called us. He's asked us to leave everything and to follow him. Sometimes we wonder, can we trust him? Can we truly trust God on this journey? Can we trust him even in the face of Death, even when the promises are not fully realized, what about when we die? Are God's, are God's promises of life strong enough to survive even death? We look at Abraham, and, and just as Abraham looked at Isaac, 
And in Isaac, he saw the fulfillment of the promise. We look at Jesus. Look at Jesus, who is the greater Isaac. Jesus, who is the true son of promise, through whom all are blessed. And Jesus comes as the perfect picture of the Father. He comes, he lives this fully righteous and faithful life, passes Father Abraham by leaps and bounds, and he dies. He dies for the faithlessness of Abraham. He dies for the faithlessness of Andy. And he dies for the faithlessness of us all. And if we would repent of our sins and believe in Jesus as our Savior, that he has died for our sins and been raised for our justification, then we will be saved and we have hope. And so when we are faced with with the darkest hours, when we're faced with the reality of death, we can trust God completely, just like Abraham did. Why? I think part of the beauty is because we can look at the Son, just as Abraham could look at his Son. And we say, if God has given us the Son, then surely he will give us the land. If God has given us the Son, then surely he will give us the promise. If we can fully trust God, that he will be good on his promises. We keep quoting this, but I feel like it's always so applicable. That he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If we have the son, then we know that God's promises to take us to himself for all eternity are sure. And so we are like Abraham. We walk as sojourners, as strangers, as foreigners in this world, but we invest ourselves fully in the land that is to come. And just as Abraham, we're not looking for a city that's built with hands. We're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God, and in the darkest of days and even in death, God can be trusted. So I think what this passage does is it gives us some questions to ponder. I think the the one question that we've been bringing out is, can we trust God even in the face of death? And the answer is yes. We say yes because if he's given us his son, then surely he's going to give us the land. If he's given us his son, then surely his promise of eternal life will come true. And so we can trust him even in the face of death. But I think the second question is that Abraham shows us is where are we staking our claim? Where is our home? You know that old, I don't know if it's not really a hymn, but it says the world, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. I don't think hymns say just a passing through. So I guess it's not formal enough to be a hymn. But you know that song. Where are we staking our claim? Is, is, this, is this our home? Abraham lived his life and he buried his dead in such a way as to prove that, as the author of Hebrews said, he was looking for a better city, a heavenly one whose builder and maker is God. And while he purchased this field, this cave, his heart was set on the hope of eternity. His heart was set on the promises of God in the future that would far outlast anything that he could purchase in the present. Andrew and I listened to a message by um, Thibiti Anabuelu, I don't know if you've heard of him, and I'm not sure if I even pronounce his name correctly, but he was talking about this passage, and he, he said this, which was so great. He says, we are not looking as Christians to inherit real estate in the Middle East. So if that's what you're hoping for, that's, that's not the right place. Our hearts aren't to be set on this earth. Our hearts aren't to be set on some cave in a field purchased by our own efforts or purchased by silver. It's a reminder to us that there was another cave that was not purchased but borrowed for three days and does not hold the bones of the patriarchs but is now empty. It is the cave where Jesus was buried and rose from. We are reminded that this earth is empty for us. 
we are reminded that there is a world to come, there is a life to come, and that's what we live for. That'll preach, won't it? Man, I wish I could come up with that. So beautiful. Everything around us is calling us to settle in. It's calling us to rest and to relax. It's calling us to seek heaven on earth, to invest our time and our energy and our finances in the stuff of earth, to follow the advice of the king of Sodom. You remember back in chapter 14 that said, Abraham, snatch and grab everything that you can now through your own efforts. And the more we get sucked into our couches, the more we get sucked into our houses, the more we get sucked into our own personal desires, the more we miss that God intends for us not to experience heaven now, but to experience heaven in heaven. And that we're supposed to invest in eternity. That we're to give glory to God in our lives now because we're not seeking glory here on earth. We're seeking it in heaven. How appropriate that tonight we gather to pray for those who are in areas of the world where it's a crime to be a Christian. Where to have faith in Christ may lead to you being ostracized by your family. Where believers' baptism may be a death sentence on your life. These are the men and the women that continue that strand of Hebrews 11, those of whom the world is not even worthy because they don't live for the comforts of the comforts of this world. Their hearts are not invested in the treasures of earth, but they are looking for that heavenly city where Jesus rules and reigns. I read this week there are those in, in Muslim nations for whom the question, where will you be buried, uh, has less to do with where home is and more to do with actually just finding a place to be buried. In this article, it was talking about missions in Turkey. And it said this about Turkey. It says, Muslims have their own cemeteries throughout Turkey, of course. The few Greeks that are left get buried in Orthodox land. And the Armenians have their own solutions. But Christian Turks don't belong anywhere after death. The sectarianism of life gets perpetuated in the grave, so it's quite a challenge for these friends to find land. They have nowhere to be buried because the thought of a, a Turkish Christian didn't make any sense until recent days. And so they have, as it says, Turkic, Turkish Christian Turks don't belong anywhere after death. But we would say, though their bones have no place to rest, and though they don't belong anywhere because of their faith in Christ, they have hope. They have a home even in death. And even though they are rejected by their fathers, God has adopted them. And even though they are thrown out by their brothers, Jesus says he's not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Though they might die with no family, they might die with no earthly possessions. They have no place even to be buried. We know that they have invested their lives and staked their life on the sure word of God, that they are bound for a better city, a heavenly one. So it doesn't matter if they own nothing, if they ha don't even have a place to be buried, because that's not where they are investing their lives. I know I've read these to you before, but I've been re I read a while ago, Shadow of the Almighty, the Life and Testament of Jim Elliot. He's slowly become one of my heroes in the faith. Jim Elliot was one of the five missionaries, you know, who was martyred in Ecuador um, in a river as he was seeking, he and his friends were seeking to take the gospel to the Aka Indians that were there. And 
you look at that and, and, and we see it and you wonder, how, how does someone get to that place? Was this some sort of accident? What's going on here? But we know that as you read Jim Elliott's journals, we see that it wasn't something that was a decision that was made in a moment, but it was a decision that he had made long before, that he was investing not in the things of this earth, but rather he was investing in eternity. And he was willing to lay down his life. He was willing to let everything go so that he could go to Ecuador and be this missionary. And you see it in things. He died in, in 1952, I believe, is the date. And he wrote things like this in 1948. So we're talking four years before. He says, God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life, and may I burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. Somewhere else he writes, Father, take my life, yea, my blood, if thou wilt, and consume it with thine enveloping fire. I would not save it, for it is not mine to save. Have it, Lord. Have it all. Pour out my life as an oblation for the world. Blood is only of value as it flows before thine altar. Powerful words. Jamele made the decision long before he went to Ecuador to say it. I'm willing to lay down my life if that's what it takes because I'm not invested in this world. I don't know where Jim Elliott was eventually buried. I know that they pulled their bodies out of the river. But I think the fact that he died in that river showed where he was investing his life. It doesn't matter where his body was. But he died in that place saying, I'm laying down my life for the cause of Christ for the furtherance of the gospel, for the glory of God. I don't care. He, he probably owned very, very little in his life. But he invested fully in eternity. Brothers and sisters, may we, along with them and along with Abraham, walk with confidence. Confidence in the face of death. Knowing that God can be trusted in the darkest of days and even in death, that he will come true on his promises. He will do what he says he will do. But not only to walk in that confidence, to say, well, I'm good for eternity, so I'm okay, but rather to, to say that everything that we have, we're going to take everything that we have and invest it in the land of promise. All that we have, everything that we're going to own, we're going to put a stake into this land of promise that God has said he will give. Because we believe, we believe that here we have no lasting city, that here moth and rust are going to destroy everything. And what they don't destroy, thieves are going to break in and take. But if we invest our lives for the sake of Christ, for the sake of his kingdom, then those things will endure for all eternity. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, we know that because you have tasted death, we do not have to. Because you have died in our place, we can have life. Lord, you have removed the sting of death. You have removed the victory of the grave. It has no power over us. So, Lord, I pray we would not walk in any kind of fear of death. Because there is nothing to fear. And I pray, Lord, that we would take our lives and pour them out for you, but that you would make our lives like sticks, we would burn for you, that you would take our blood and pour it out on your altar, whether figuratively or even literally, if that's what you would have us to do. 
because here we have no lasting city. But there is nothing here that will last. But if we would take our lives and invest them in the land of promise, invest them in eternal things, invest them in your glory, Lord, then they will endure throughout all eternity. Lord, I pray again for our brothers and sisters that are living this right now, that are facing death and persecution. And in the face of it, Lord, give them the courage, give them the hope that they can trust you. And that even if they die, that they show they have invested their lives in what truly matters. Lord, and here in this country, in this place where we have everything at our fingertips, Lord, help us to run from those things when we need to. Help us to learn how to invest in what will truly matter. As we continue with our heads up, bowed and eyes closed, let's just take our moment of silence and ask that God would speak to us. If you are fearful of death, that he would help you to see that Jesus brings hope. And if there are things in your life that you're holding on to that Maybe you're not well, you're not investing in eternity, but you're investing in this world that, that God would reveal those things to your heart and that we would be fully sold out for him. So let's take this moment of silence and allow God's spirit to apply his word to our hearts. Lord God, we long for the day when we will shake off the tent of this body, the temptations of this world, and we will be with you forever. But help us never to fear death because you have tasted it for us. But I pray that you would make us so heavenly minded that we will truly be of some earthly good because we have invested fully in what is to come and what will truly last. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.